0: Okay, for the last few weeks, we've been doing um, kind of an overview of some of the psalms. So picture this, if you've ever like gone to Hawaii, maybe, maybe you had, how many of you have ever been to Hawaii on vacation? Okay, so you go to Hawaii, now it depends on how much is in your vacation budget, but if you have this in your vacation budget, has anybody ever done one of those helicopter flights in Hawaii? Where they take you over. Yeah, it's pretty cool. The idea is you get up in the helicopter, it flies over, and it will take you to certain spots and point out stuff like, hey, there's an active volcano, and they fly over it, and you look down and hope you don't fall in, and they take you over, and they're like, hey, this is an amazing coral reef, and you fly over it, and hey, there's a waterfall over here. That's kind of what we were doing with the book of Psalms right now. We're just sort of jumped into this helicopter and we're flying over the book of Psalms. And basically there are, as, as your pilot, there are some, some spots that I want you to see, that I don't want you to miss. And so we're not teaching through the whole book of Psalms, but instead we're just taking a few weeks really to just sort of fly over and go, hey, look at that one hey, look at this one over here. And I want you to just get a glimpse of some of the awesomeness that we find in the book of Psalms and how much we can see God there. So I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Um, a lot of you already have your Bibles open or your iPod, iPads out or your phones out or whatever, and you're looking at the Scripture. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Everybody stand up. If you're physically able to stand up, please stand up. If not, you can remain seated. Um, because here's the thing. Here's uh, the thing. This happens in two different ways. Number one, sometimes when we're, when we're reading a passage in Scripture that is familiar to us, we have a tendency to just sort of go, oh yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that, and we get through it and it doesn't impact us. The other thing that happens is on a Sunday morning when I'm standing up here and I'm reading a Scripture and you are following along in your own Bibles, which I hope many of you are doing, and you're following along in your Bibles, you may have a slightly different translation than I have, and it might get confusing and different words are, but, but here's the thing, Psalms are poetry. And, and they're meant to be understood as a whole. And they're meant to be heard all together as one. And so what I want us to do is instead of asking you to follow along in your own version of the Bible, just set it down for a second, okay? And I want you to just listen to what is being said. And I'm going to read all of Psalm 139 to you. You may even want to just close your eyes, put your hands on the chair in front of you so you don't pass out or something, but close your eyes. Just get rid of the distractions for a second and listen For the word of God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. And laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely, the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and lights are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I, made, when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try, me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now I'm going to ask one more thing of you at the beginning here. If you have something to write with, get it out, okay? You you may be a person who doesn't usually take notes, that's fine, but you're going to need something to write with or write on. If you don't have anything to write with, then um, you're going to have to really t- tap into your brain and make sure you can keep track of these things mentally, But you need something to write with. There's a place to write on the back of your bulletin. If you don't have a a piece of paper, you've got that. Because um, what's about to happen is your greatest nightmare when you're in high school. We're going to have a pop quiz, okay? And you're going to have to answer some questions. And And don't worry, these are very likely the easiest questions you have ever heard. They might take you all of one second to answer them, but I want you to do it. I want you to write down your answers or at least make a mental note of your answers, okay? Are you ready to begin? All right, question number one. Which country makes Panama hats? Which country makes Panama hats? Number two, in which month do Russians celebrate the October Revolution? Okay, write down your answer. Which month do Russians celebrate the October Revolution? Number three, how long did the Hundred Years' War last? How long did the Hundred Years' War last? You notice I'm not giving you a lot of time, right? Hopefully you're keeping up. Number four, uh, from which animal do we get catgut? From which animal do we get cat gut? Yeah, ooh, I agree. Ooh. Next. What is a camel hair brush made of? What is a camel hair brush made of? Next. What was King George the first name? The first name of King George the Sixth. Next. What color? Are you paying attention? is a purple finch. What color is a purple finch? Next question. Where are Chinese gooseberries grown? Chinese gooseberries, where are they grown? And finally, how long did the Thirty Years War last? Okay, everybody got your answers? We're going to go back. Should I make you switch papers with your neighbor, or can I trust you? All right, we're going to grade our own papers. You ready? Let's go back to number one. Question number one, what country makes Panama hats? The answer is Ecuador. Panama hats are made in Ecuador. Number two, in which month do Russians celebrate the October Revolution? In November. The Russian calendar used to be 13 days behind ours, and so that explains that. Um, Next, how long did the Hundred Years' War last? 116 years. From 1337 to 1453. I think Dean was in the last part of that war. Were you in that? Yeah? I think it was. Um, next, from which animal do we get catgut? We get catgut from horses and sheep. Next, what's a camel's hair brush made of? Squirrel fur. I don't know who catches the squirrels, but it's true. What was King George VI's first name? Albert. Uh, Queen Victoria had passed a law that said there cannot be any other kings named Albert. So when this guy came to the throne, he was known as King George. What color is a purple finch? Anybody know? Red. Where are Chinese gooseberries from? New Zealand. And finally, how long did the 30 years war last? 30 years, mean, It's called a 30 years war. I don't know why you're not getting that wrong. Okay, let's see how we did. How many of you got every one of those right? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of, them, how many of you got at least five of those right? Anybody get four right? Did you get four right? Okay, she's the one who messed up the curve, okay, everybody? <laughs> you win the award, congratulations, you got four of those right. So here's the thing, last week we were in Psalm 19, and what we were doing was we're sort of taking a telescope and we were looking up at the greatness of God, right? And it was talking about how all of creation shows us the greatness of God, how God is revealed and what he has created And we're talking about his awesomeness and how great he is. And um, if this quiz is any indication, God is um, a little bit ahead of us. We're not quite so impressive as he is. The best person in our class got four out of 10. So there's this big divide, right, between this great and awesome God and us. Does everybody get that? You and God, me and God, we're different. Right There's a big divide between us and God. And when I think about how big God is, and I think about how comparatively small I am, one of the things that can happen is that I can just be sort of caught up in the amazement of God, this great out there being, and I can feel really small and unimportant in comparison. And that's why I want to follow up on Psalm 19 with Psalm 139. We're going to see in 139 that our God is really big and we are really small and yet that doesn't make us insignificant in any way. The way that God views you, the way that God views me is with this unbelievable um, personal touch. He looks at you individually. He loves you individually. He knows you individually. He cares about you individually. In fact, his, in His vastness, God's attention, even though the whole universe is under His control, His attention is on you personally, on you individually all the time. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? He knows everything and His attention is on me all the time. And so when I put those two together, what does that tell me? He knows everything about me. God knows everything about me. Now go to Psalm 139 if you're not already there, and we're going to start, and we're going to break this down into sections, and we're going to see these different pictures that are going to help us understand this relationship between this awesome God and little old me. We're going to begin in Psalm 139 verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Does anybody agree with David there when you say that such knowledge is just too amazing? It's just incredible, right? Um, The first section of of Psalm 139 introduces us to the concept of God's omniscience. God's omniscience. Now, God's omniscience, you know, the word omniscience is kind of a $3 theologian's word that... um, Maybe we don't all use every day. So let me explain it. Break it down and do its parts. What does omni mean? All, right? And what does science mean? It refers to knowledge, right? All knowledge. God is omniscient. He has all knowledge. God knows everything. Now, when I say God knows everything, do I mean God knows a lot? No. I mean God knows everything. God knows everything everything. I want you to see this in the New Testament, and just keep your finger there in Psalm 139 because we're going to be camping there, but I want you to go to the back of your New Testament, almost all the way to the back of the book of Hebrews, and I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to see this verse, excuse me, not Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 4, and I want you to see this verse in Hebrews chapter 4. Because um, for several weeks, we were talking about hearing the voice of God. And during that series, I referred to a verse in Hebrews 4 again and again. It was Hebrews 4.12. That's the verse that says God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword, living and active. It's able to to go down deep into our soul and our spirit, right? That verse is followed up by verse 13. Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from his eyes. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's no creature hidden from his eyes. Nothing he has created is outside of his view. He's watching. There's no creature that is hidden from his eyes. This God with whom we have to do is paying attention to us. There's no question that God cannot answer. There is no circumstance that God doesn't know how to deal with. There is no problem that confuses him. There is uh, never a surprised look on his face. God never goes, oh, you're kidding me. That never happens for God. You know what else never happens for God? God never learns anything. God is incapable of learning. You say, well, I thought God could do anything. No, there are many things God can't do. One of the things God can't do is he can't learn. Why? Because he already knows everything. There will be no new knowledge that comes to bear where God goes, oh, I better write that one down and remember it. God knows everything. That's a powerful concept. And better yet, he knows everything about me. Look at verse two. Go back to Psalm 139 if you're not there. And look at verse two. It says, you know when I sit down, and when I rise up, that is to say, you know my actions. It's a, it's a Hebrew colloquialism, when I sit down and rise up, it means everything I do. He says, whenever I sit down, you know it. When I rise up, you know it. Whatever I'm doing in between sitting down and rising up, you know all about that. And he goes on in verse 2, and he says, you understand my thought from afar. Even the thoughts that I think, God knows. Now, does that make you Comfortable or uncomfortable? (laughs) Even the thoughts that I think he knows. Look at verse 3. Even um, you scrutinize my path and my lying down. My path or literally in the Hebrew, my journey. You're watching my journey. You're seeing the way I'm walking through life. And even when I rest... You see me at rest and you watch over me when I lie down. And by the way, you know, a lot of times we don't rest enough, do we? But our God has a way of helping us rest, doesn't he? Because if you won't rest, God will rest you, right? And so he watches over us and cares even about our rest. Uh, At the end of verse 3, he is intimately acquainted with all of my ways, intimately acquainted, not just familiar, but intimately acquainted, knows every detail about all of my ways. Verse four, even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Have you ever, have you ever um, said something that you regretted saying? No? Just, is it, am I the only one? Sometimes it gets out, right? And as it's tumbling out, you're like reaching for it, and you realize, I shouldn't have said that. Or you find out later, man, I really blew it. I shouldn't have said that. I was wrong to say that. You know, it says here that God knows your thoughts while you're thinking them, and he knows your words before they're even in your mouth. I read that. I was thinking, God, if you could just do me a favor, maybe send me a text (laughs) once in a while and go, hey, Doug, 1030 tomorrow morning, just keep your mouth shut. That would help me so much. It would keep me out of so much trouble. He knows my thoughts. He knows my words before they're even in my mouth. Again, I ask you this question. Does that make you more or less comfortable to think about that? Yikes. God knows everything about me. Remember what we said last week about how big God is? We were talking about this We're looking at Isaiah 40, where in Isaiah 40, it says that he measures the whole universe with the span of his hand, right? And we're just talking about the vastness of the universe and how big the universe is. God knows everything about me. That big God, as huge as he is, is interested in every intimate detail of my life, right down to the thoughts that I think and the way that I rest. Look at verse 5. You have enclosed me behind him before and laid your hand upon me. That's close. He's, he's wrapped his arms around us. We're talking about intimacy here. We're talking about closeness. And verse 6, loosely translated, is uh, you blow my mind. That's basically what he's saying. He says, um, it's too high for me. It's too wonderful for me. I can't even really think well about this. And so I'm going to confess to you right now that right along with David the psalmist, as your pastor, I'm going to tell you this, uh, you're only going to get a mediocre message today because I don't get this. This is beyond my understanding. I'm trying to explain here something that I don't even really understand. Our God is so great that I don't know how great he is, right? Right? Our God is so awesome that I don't have an appreciation for his awesomeness. Our God is infinite, and I am finite, and therefore it's impossible for me to even get close to grasping God, and yet the Bible describes him to us, and the description it gives to us is just a glimpse. I think of it this way. It's like, remember when when Moses went... Um, up on the mountain, and he wanted to see God's face, and God said, no, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll stick you in this cave, and then I'll, I'll go by you with my backside, and, and you'll get that much of a glimpse of me. You're not going to really be able to see me, but you know what? When Moses saw him just that much, what happened to Moses' face? It glowed for days. Just just being exposed to what we can know about God is an awesome thing, and I want us to get that. And we should say what the psalmist: "You're blowing my mind, God. I, I just can't believe this." They of it this way: Who on earth knows you the best? It, it, maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's a sibling or a best friend. I don't. Is anybody in here a twin? Anybody a twin? But you, you've heard about what it's like with twins, right? Like, they could be thousands of miles apart and they're somehow connected. I don't get all of that. But but if I had a twin, I would probably say, my twin knows me better than anybody. God knows you infinitely beyond the person who knows you the best. There's absolutely nothing hidden. And before you run screaming from the room because you know that, be reminded He loves you with an infinite love. What an awesome God we serve. By the way, now that we've got all this on the table, are you more or less comfortable? I ask you again. The more we know about God, the more we see about what He knows about us, it should on the one hand be reassuring, shouldn't it? That our God has us, His eye is on the sparrow, as the old song says, and if His eye is on the sparrow, I know that He watches me. But on the other hand, we think, there's some times when I just as soon he was looking the other way. And it makes me uncomfortable to know that he knows every thought that goes through this sick little head of mine. It makes me uncomfortable to know that he knows every word, even the ones that I don't speak out loud. It makes me uncomfortable to know that in the quiet darkness, when there's no one else looking and I'm being tempted, he's watching that temptation and how I respond to that temptation is important to him. So on the one hand, I'm comforted to know that uh, he's this intimately acquainted with me. On the other hand, it makes me kind of uncomfortable. Well, the story goes on. He's not just omniscient. He's also omnipresent. Now again, omnipresent. Omni means all. Present means... Present, right? See, I'm a linguist. You get this from me. Omnipresent. God is everywhere. You can't get away from Him, and that's what we're going to see. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a situation where you were just like seriously hiding out? You don't have to tell me. I probably don't want to know. But let me tell you a story. Before I knew the Lord... My life was, shall we say, not exactly in line with the Scriptures. And I was out one night on a Saturday night with a bunch of friends. And uh, we were out in this park. But there's nobody there but us. It was real late at night and it was very dark. And we're sitting in a circle. Okay? Picture, it's like a Bible study. But there was no Bible. And we were sharing. That is to say that there was passing going on okay and as this is happening the all of a sudden the park lights up because three police cars pull up at once and they put their lights on us and immediately we hear this police don't move so of course we ran <laughs> now there was a bunch of us and there was only three police cars so we ran in all different directions right we weren't exactly thinking straight, but at least we knew that. We ran in different directions, and I took off across the park. I know that when you look at me now, you go, he must be a fast runner, right? <laughs> but, but in those days, I wasn't such a fast runner. And, and I take off across this park, and I was the fastest I've ever run. And I am running, and I hit the sidewalk, and I turn down the sidewalk, and I start running into the, into the housing tract. And as I run into the housing tract, I hear in the distance, it's in the distance, but it's gaining on me. I hear a sound that I was not happy to hear. It was the sound of the police dog that was chasing me. (laughs) This is not a good situation. So I am running, okay? Now, by the way, did I mention this was before I knew Jesus? Did I say that? Let me say that again. So I'm running from the police and um, his canine partner and... And the dog is catching up. And I'm hearing this barking catching up. And I turn the corner, and I'm sprinting. And now I'm out of the sight of the dog and the policeman. And the first house there on the corner has a um, camper, you know one of those cab-over campers for camping? It has one of those. And I just grabbed the doorknob, and it was unlocked. And I jumped in, closed the door, got down under the table. And I heard the dog go running past. I heard the policeman go running past. And I laid there for three hours (laughs) because I just knew the moment I move, there is a dog going to eat me. And so, and and I remember the feeling of laying there and the thoughts that went through my head and all the ways I was chastising myself and saying, my parents were right. I shouldn't have been doing this. What a dummy. Why am I acting like this? I got to get my life cleaned up. Meanwhile, I'm just laying there silently, not moving. Until three hours pass, and then finally I slowly get up, look out of the drapes of the thing, and then I go home, and I, and I got away. But, but that, that story is not told to tell you young people that you can't get away from the police, okay? <laughs> it is told to say that, that when you're hiding, there is a sense of desperation that says, man, I just can't get caught. When there's something that's really at stake, we, we, we're pretty good at hiding. But we have this omnipresent God. You remember in Genesis, God said to Adam and Eve, the whole world is yours in joy, but don't eat from this one tree. And what did they do? <laughs> of course, they ate from that tree. And then as soon as they ate from the tree, they were suddenly aware of shame. And they were embarrassed. And they were ashamed. And so what did they do? When God came to have fellowship with them into the garden and God looked and they weren't there and God said, where are you? And I've said this before, but let me just remind you, whenever God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, okay? When God says, where are you? He's trying to tell you something. And so he says, where are you? And Adam realizes that he's caught and he says, "Um, we're hiding from you. God says, why would you hide from me? Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? And Adam said, yeah, we ate from it, and we were ashamed. And in our shame, we hid from you, God. Now, we hear that story, and we go, Adam and Eve must have been idiots. Who hides from an all-knowing, all-seeing God? Who thinks that somehow you can hide from God? And we look at them and we go, what a couple of morons. And then you look in the mirror and go, huh, me too. Because how many times have I tried to hide from God? How many times have I thought, you know what, God, um, I, really, I really appreciate you being with me and all that kind of stuff, but what I'm about to do, you're probably not interested in. So I'm going to have you stay over here, and I'm just going to go this way for a while. You stay over there. I don't want to talk about what I'm doing. How many times has the Holy Spirit begun to move in my heart, and I begin to feel the conviction of God, and I just say, I don't want to talk about this, and I just end my prayer and walk away and say, I'm done with this. See, this idea that we're going to hide from God is insane, and we do it. What are we doing hiding from God? Well, Psalm 39 sheds some light on why hiding from God is not just a bad idea, it's impossible. So let's go back to Psalm 139. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea and you um, even there, your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Picture this. You're a character in a horror movie. You and some of your friends have rented a cabin in the remote woods for the weekend. You've gone up on Friday to the cabin and got everything set up and going, and one of the guys said, oh, I left something out in the car, and it's, a, it's a, you know, a little ways down, and so he goes out to get something out of the car, and a half an hour goes by, and he doesn't come back. And so a couple more go, you know, we better go and look for him, and they go off to look for him, and guess what? They don't come back, right? And two or three more say, man, something's going on. we got to figure out where they're at, and they go up because people in horror movies are brilliant, so, so they go off looking for those people, and now you're the only one left, and nobody has come back. And you say, something is definitely wrong, and you go get your cell phone, and you have no reception. And so you say, you know what? There's a house phone. You go pick up the house phone, and the line has been cut. And suddenly you hear this music, eerie music. Yo, man, something is going on. And you start to get scared. And just as you're freezing and thinking about what to do, you hear footsteps walking around your cabin. What are you going to do? You head off to the back bedroom, you get under a bed and you're hiding under the bed, right? Now, as you're hiding under the bed, you hear this sound at the front door. And the door opens. And then you hear Footsteps. And the footsteps are making their way to the very room where you are. And you are under the bed. You have already wet yourself some time ago. (laughs) And so you are laying there, trying not to scream, trying not to cry, trying not to breathe loudly when the footsteps enter the room and they walk across the hardwood floor and a black shoe stops right next to the bed and suddenly you see the legs begin to bend and you feel a hand grab your leg and pull you out from under the bed are you okay everybody all right ricky are you okay he looks like he's starting to cry are you all right okay this leg pulls you out from under the bed and stands you up like this And suddenly you notice that the guy who pulled you out from under the bed is a police officer. (laughs) That he has already rescued all of your friends. And he has the assailant in handcuffs in the back of his car locked away. And he was just there to rescue you. That's what a whole lot of us are doing with God. As we hide and we run. And we forget that this God who knows everything about me. And this God who is with me at all times actually has my best in mind. What are we doing hiding from God? But we still look for places to hide. Look at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is to say the netherworld or the the underworld, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, you're there. You think, well, I'm gonna just, I'll am going just dive down. I'll just go underwater. I'll live under the sea. That's how I'm going to get away from God. Well, tell Jonah about how well that works. No matter where you go, he's there. You say, I'm going to hide in the dark. Well, here's the deal. Look what it says. It says in verse um, 11, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light uh, surra- and, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Why is the darkness like light to God? Because God is light. And where there is light, there is no darkness. Anytime light and darkness compete Who wins? Light always chases away darkness. God is light, the light of the world. You can't hide from him in the darkness. There's no point to run from God. The poet has called God the hound of heaven, the one who pursues and pursues and pursues and pursues. He never leaves us. He never lets us leave his sight. He is always there. And that means He is there in those times when you so desperately need Him and you're crying out to Him and you just want Him to help you, and He's there. It also means He's there in those dark times, in those quiet times, when nobody else is there, when you're doing what you shouldn't be doing. God is there too. That's something to think about the next time that you're tempted to disobey Him and go on your own way. He sees. He knows. He cares. Just think about how much he cares. Look at verse 13. "'For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth.'" Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You go to bed and you say, Lord, be with me, and you wake up, and the first thing you have to know is He's still with you. He wove you together in your mother's womb. When you were an unformed substance, not just that He saw you, but He knew you. When you were yet an unformed substance. Do you see why a worldview that denies God could have such contempt for babies in the womb? That if you don't understand this God who made us, this God who made us in his image, this God who loves us, then a human being is maybe just a glob of tissue. It may be just some sort of advanced evolutionary process. But it says that he knit you together in your mother's womb. It says that he knew you when you were yet an unformed substance. He makes each and every child unique and individual. Now, it's time for science class again. Last week, we took the telescope and put it up toward the sky, and we talked about the vastness of God's creation. This week, we're going to take a microscope, and we're going to look down at the human being, and we're going to get a sense of just what he's talking about when it says that he knows us. Every second, every second, more than 100,000 chemical reactions take place in your brain. Every second. Well, for most of us, some of us a few less, but most of us. Your brain has 10 billion nerve cells to record just what you see and hear. Think about your eye. If you just study the human eye, there's no way to deny God's existence. Just think about your eye, which has 100 million receptor cells, rods and cones, in each eye, Your retina also has four other layers of nerve cells. Altogether, the system makes the equivalent of 10 billion calculations a second just so you can see what you see. That's before an image even gets to your optic nerve. And once it reaches your brain, the cerebral cortex of the brain has more than a dozen separate vision centers to process what is coming into it visually. Part of your brain regulates voluntary matters, like uh, you want to lift your hand and so you tell those muscles to work, and part of your brain does that. There's another part of your brain that, that deals with the involuntary things, like digestion and secretion on heartbeats, all the things that are going on, whether you think about them or not, or tell them to happen or not, or will them to happen or not, and your brain is controlling all of that at once. One square inch of your skin has 625 sweat glands. That explains a lot to me. That helps me. One square inch of your skin has 19 feet of blood vessels in it. One square inch of your skin has 19,000 sensory cells just so you can feel And those things are all working in coordination with your brain so that it can maintain your body temperature at 98.6 degrees unless for some reason it needs to go up or needs to go down and then it adjusts it without your knowledge. Your stomach has 35 million glands which secrete just the right amount of juices to allow your body to digest whatever processed junk you just put in there. And If you're at Taco Bell, it's more. also that you can turn food into energy so your muscles can do what they do and and it's constantly digesting but in order to avoid digesting itself your stomach creates a new lining for itself every 3 days your heart beats over 100,000 times every day and it pumps blood to your cells and the total distance of that blood flow is something like 168 million miles of blood flow in a day. One single human chromosome, a DNA molecule, contains 20 billion bits of information. And if you translate that, that's about two million pages of text in an average 500 page English language book. Now where did I get all that information? You say, man, pastor. You know theology, you know the Bible, and you know science. No, I don't know this stuff. I looked it up. You know where I got it? You know who wrote that? All that I just gave you? No less well-known atheist than Carl Sagan gave us that information in his book, The Dragons of Eden. And then he went on to say, isn't it amazing how chance over time could create something like that? And he continued to say that there is no God. Still believing that there is no God. And I say with all sincerity and due respect, sadly, he knows better now because he died about two years ago. And that has a way of bringing truth right to the forefront. You tell me, based on the evidence, what takes more faith, to be an atheist or to be a Christian? Our God is an awesome God. And He is intimately acquainted with each one of us. He loves each one of us with an unbreakable love. And when you think about a God like that, it boggles the mind to think that anybody would ever even consider rebelling against that God. It just boggles the mind. How would anybody say, I'm, I see that amazing God, but instead of letting my life be about Him, I'm going to reject Him and I'm going to turn and do things my own way because I could be a better God than He is for myself. Who would do that? What kind of a moron would reject a God like that? And then you look in the mirror and go, oh, because how many times do I take my life into my own hands and let my own decisions guide and direct me as though somehow I know better than God? Maybe it's that kind of sense of how someone could possibly rebel against a God like that that sparked the next words in David's poem beginning in verse 19. Oh that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your name uh, your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Those verses make you uncomfortable like they do me. I hate you with the utmost hatred? My enemies? I hate them? I mean, is this not the same Bible that tells us to do what to our enemies? Love. We're supposed to love our enemies, and yet David is just like screaming here that he hates people who hate God, that he hates people who rebel against God. And you go, how does that make sense? Does it it bother you to think that That hatred like that is even on the option list for people who are followers of God? How do we make sense of the teaching of Jesus, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, and then what David is saying here, I hate them with an utmost hatred? There's a great theologian named R.C. Sproul, and he wrote on this, and I just want to take what he said because I don't know how to say it any better. Here's what he said, if there is such a thing as perfect hatred, it would mirror and reflect the righteousness of God. It would be perfect to the extent that it excluded sinful attitudes of malice, envy, bitterness. In other words, my hatred of this is not about me. It's, it's about God's goodness. Take away all of my humanity here, all my bitterness, all my malice, all my wrong attitudes that we normally associate, the quote sprawl with human hatred. In this sense, a perfect hatred could be deemed compatible with the love for one's enemies. One who hates his enemy with a perfect hatred is still called to act in a loving and righteous manner toward him. See, there's, there's a sense in which we are to hate everything that God hates. And what does God hate? Sin. And so sin we're supposed to despise, whether it's in our own lives or in the lives of someone else. We're supposed to despise sin. And if we truly see God for who He is, then we're going to hate sin. But because of God's grace and love, we're going to express that grace and love to even those who are caught up in that sin. So go ahead and hate sin. But may I suggest that you go about it like this? Hate your own sin. Until there's no more of it. And then turn your eyes on somebody else. But let's just hate sin. And I think when we think about it that way, it helps us to understand why the soul ends the way it does. With David asking God to work on him. Look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way search me, O oh God. Now remember, when we're saying, asking God to search us, God's not going to discover anything that He doesn't already know, right? It's not as though God's looking around going, all right, what's going on in there? Let me see. That's not it. When we're saying, "Oh God, search me, what we're saying is, God, reveal to me what you already know about my heart. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Look at my heart, God. What do you see there? And He says, Try me and know my anxious thoughts, my heart, my mind, all the junk, and see if there's any hurtful way in me. And if there is, God, expose it to me and remove it from my life and let me begin to walk in this everlasting way, this great plan that you have for my life. God, let me walk in that. And so I ask you as we close, are you willing to pray that kind of prayer with David? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Lead me in an everlasting way. To ask God to reveal your heart to you so that you can walk in repentance and obedience and experience the life that Jesus died to give you. Listen, here's a piece of advice. This would make a marvelous prayer every morning when your feet hit the floor. As that alarm goes off and you feel for it and you finally turn it off, Don't stay there in bed and pray this prayer because you won't get up. Get up. Stand on the cold floor and say, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me today, Lord Jesus, in the everlasting way. Let me live a life that reveals your greatness and respects your love toward me. As God reveals our shortcomings to us, and He helps us to repent, then He'll lead us in an everlasting way. What a mighty God we serve. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.